you know, you see a spider vein that weighs only on, on the bladder channel, you know, that might help with back pain. It might help with any sort of ailments along the bladder channel. Well, the same goes for Feng Long. Feng Long, oftentimes, if you follow tongue acupuncture, you know, Dong Shi Qi Shi, they tend to bleed around the Feng Long area. And they say that area is very, very important area for global blood stagnation throughout the body, but in particular, also on the stomach channel. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. There is a lot of tea worth drinking in Taiwan. Kaohsiung, Oolong, Sijichun, Pur, Baozong. But my favorite is the charcoal-roasted Tiaguanyin, the Iron Goddess of Mercy tea from the Muja area. Iron Goddess of Mercy. I have always loved that name. The Iron Goddess. That image delights me. I suspect that the Iron Goddess, she doesn't lay down the mercy that you want. She lets you have it with the mercy that you need. She's the goddess that is ferociously kind. The one that kicks your ass with love and has penetrating insight into how to break you out of your well-loved and cherished limits. I love the tea, and I love the image of iron mercy. Mercy that doesn't mess around, the kind of mercy that brings a liberation that you might only see in retrospect. It makes me wonder what an iron god of mercy would look like, feel like. How would that image and energy change men's hearts and make us more reliable in the way that is in line with the masculine energies of creation, husbanding, and fathering in the very best sense of the terms? Iron men would have the capacity to wrestle with complicated ideas without losing their footing and without belittling, strawmanning, or undercutting another's ideas. He has the capacity to disagree without disliking respectfully consider multiple sides of an argument, and doesn't waste time or emotional energy on being offended. Iron men would not take advantage of women. They don't bully or steal or cheat. They're right and solid, so they're hard to insult. They are clear and definitive with boundaries, and so can disagree without damaging relationships. They're capable of bringing the thunder and judicious in its use. The iron god of mercy would call you to account for your self-inflicted shortcomings and give you the tools for breaking your own shackles. He'd deal out equal amounts of love and accountability, call you out when you're using lies or slander to undermine another's credibility, and point out where your contradictions give you pleasure, but not progress. It's easy to conflate mercy with softness. But I suspect that true mercy is usually forged with grit and fire out of caring enough to stand up for what's right and true, especially when it means honestly rearranging what you've held as virtuous and true that is no longer either. Iron mercy. It's potent medicine in proper measure. Just before starting acupuncture school, I wondered to myself if I'd have to learn some Chinese. The answer turned out to be, no, you don't have to, but 
It does help if you want to engage the clinical experience of long dead doctors in a way that brings the medicine alive through your clinical work. In this episode with Michael Brown, Iran Evan, Will Curvelis, and Ivan Zavala, we discuss language and translation not as an end in itself, but as a way to enliven your clinical work. This is a lively discussion of practitioner translators in which you'll take away some practical clinical perspectives that you can investigate for yourself. We'll get into this in a moment. Stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love 
was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Today, I have got the International Chinese Medicine Translation Mafia with me. We have Will Curvelis. He's in Taizong, Taiwan. Around Evan in beautiful Port Moody, Canada. Ivan Zalava, you're in Tavala. You're here in the Midwest time zone, right? Yeah, Chicago. Yeah, Chicago. And Michael Brown, you're in somewhere in Oz. Yeah, it's a pretty big place. Not many people know about it. Just Brisbane, but... <laughs> Brisbane, okay. Great. And I'm Michael Max. I'm here in the same time zone as uh, Ivan. We're here together today to talk about translation, Chinese medicine, classics, all the groovy stuff that we all like so much. And I'd like to begin by having each of you guys do a brief introduction of yourself. You know, we've all got some kind of uh, Chinese medicine creation story and origin story, like how we got here. Rather than do that, what I'd like to know is what brought you down this path of doing language and beyond that, translation work. So I'll start with uh, my fellow... Time zoning, Ivan. That's such a great question, Michael. I never really even wanted to learn Chinese or anything like that. I just wanted to know Chinese medicine. And the way I really got into classics was there was a forum. So before I even got into Chinese medicine school, I'll be reading all these Chinese medicine forums. And one of them I saw Bob Floss was very active. I don't even remember the forums. And Bob Floss at that time, Blue Poppy had the most, I think, classics translated because of Yang Shouzhong like Jia Jing and Pi Wei Lun and Shu Dan Shi and Fu Xing Ju and a host of Mai Jing, yeah, Wang Shi He and all those and so on. And so he used to recommend that and he's like, oh, no one reads his books. But so I just literally bought any book because I had a scholarship at the time from high school. I used to spend all my scholarship on Chinese medicine books before Chinese medicine school. And then also just maybe some character books from Wiseman. When I just started like maybe practicing it and just like, I don't know, like I hate this Chinese. I don't even want to learn it. But then I felt something shifted in me like to learn Chinese medicine, I need to learn Chinese. Now, is that a hundred percent true? No, I still think you could be a good Chinese medicine doctor without knowing Chinese. But it was instrumental in like shifting my relationship to Chinese medicine. And I already have been trying to study the classics since before Chinese medicine school, because I like the narrative. I think Chinese medicine, there's like a narrative, like a story time in it. And, you know, like, come on, kids, time for story time. It's just kind of, and each character is a different story. Shu and Shi, you got this celibate monk telling you to not have sex for the rest of your life, right? And then there's a Li Dong Yuan, who's like this elite scholar who practices medicine on these free time, 
And then there's Zhang Zhongjing, the valiant hero of the times. So anyways, and each one has a different strategy. So I used to study them and just became so immersed in the narrative. And I think the classics, when you approach them like that, instead of just this dried opaque books, they have a narrative. Even one line can hit you and reflect and affect even your perception, not just on medicine, but of life. And then you carry that into medicine because you are a being that is interfacing with another being, with your life experiences and your thoughts and your siway, not just your silu. And so your thinking process is your life experiences and reflections. And the classics help shape that because we are 21st century modern persons. And so we are indoctrinated with Western thinking, Aristotle and all those people, but the didactic thinking. But Chinese medicine is a different way of thinking and the classics and the classic physicians and poets and help reshape your mind that I think you need to in order to break away from the indoctrination of Western thinking. And then we can go back to Western thinking with a new perspective. That's what the classics have done for me, like a form of symbolism. But anyways, I feel like I talked too much. <laughs> okay. You started studying Chinese and the classics before you even went to Chinese medicine school. Yes. All right. There's a whole other story there, but maybe we'll get to that later. Let's journey west. Oh, Iran. Right on. Thanks for having us, Michael. This is it's great. Good to see you. That was awesome. I did actually know your origin story. That's that was really cool. Thank you for sharing. I'm gonna keep it a little shorter though. My origin story is I studied Chinese medicine a long time ago. So well over 20 years ago. And when, after I graduated, I had no intention of learning Chinese. That wasn't really something I was thinking about. I didn't really question the value of my education. And it took me a while to realize that it was a terrible education. And it wasn't until 2003, I decided that I was going to go to China. And I figured I had to go to China if I have to see this medicine alive, right? Because it wasn't enough what we were doing in our student clinics here. And one of my old teachers said, you know, he told me, he said, you need to learn Chinese because if you don't learn Chinese, you're going to go there and you're going to be just given stories. You're going to go to the hospital and they're going to tell you everything is great and everything is working and everything's amazing. And I didn't want it that way. I wanted to go there and speak to the patients. I wanted to know that things were working. I wanted to see it become alive. So I went back to college and started studying Chinese. And at the same time, I was doing an apprenticeship in a Chinese-only clinic for two years. So all I heard was Chinese. It was a good opportunity for me to hone my medical skills, but also listen to a ton of Chinese. And then I moved to Beijing in 2005 and essentially kind of went back to school. I just kind of redid the program and did it in Chinese and just kind of jumped in the fire. And at that point, I wasn't learning how to read. I was just like, okay, I'm just going to learn how to speak Chinese. That's it. And I had a friend, my friend Maggie over there, who was my language partner. She just gave me crap. She's like, you can't learn how to speak Chinese and not learn how to read Chinese. So she literally forced me to learn how to read Chinese and would sit with me for hours and we would go over the characters. And the more I got into it, the more I fell in love with it. And then I all of a sudden discovered this treasure trove of literature that was available to us and to discover that, you know, as English speakers, we probably only have access to maybe four or 5% of what's available to Chinese readers, right? So that in itself was the motivation enough for me to go as deep as possible. And I mean, it's been a journey. I mean, I've been studying Chinese for over 20 years now, and I feel that I'm never going to master the language. It's it, What makes it so fun is that 
it's so complex and it's so difficult that I'll be learning my whole life. And it's the same thing with Chinese medicine, right? I mean, this evolution of how we practice and how we view the medicine. I always tell people that, you know, I'm going to be on my deathbed and I'll get a glimmer of it. And I'll just be like, oh yeah, I kind of get it now. And so, and for me, that's the most fun, right? It never ends. You can't master this. I get to be a student every single day and it's a beautiful thing. And I'm very grateful now that I actually was pushed to go into the language because uh, the amount of information that's available and just the doors that that's opened for myself as well, just being able to do a doctoral program and to do all these things in Chinese probably wouldn't have been available to me. Yes, it really opens the door. I'm very grateful for that. I get what you're yeah. saying, that you get these glimmers. You get these glimmers sometimes with the language. Something comes together in a way. It's like a gestalt. It's not really a mental process. There's a meaning that can come through. These glimmers happen all the time. They happen in clinic, of course, as we're working with people. And it's interesting with the language as well that, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I'll be working on a line or a paragraph and I'm like not getting it, not getting it. It's like, what exactly is this? And then poof, it shows up. It's like, oh, that's what they mean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have to put some work into it, but it can pay you back in, in handsome ways. Yeah. Will, what about you? Well, you know, like when I was in my third year in university, I sort of decided that I would go down the Chinese medicine path. And so just then I said from the start that I would do it in China or Taiwan, got the scholarship to go to Taiwan, did like a long route where I spent some time in Taiwan, then in China. Also was in Beijing, interestingly. I didn't know Iran was in Beijing. I was there starting in 2011. So I guess we didn't cross paths at that time. And then I went back to Taiwan, did the program and the rest is history. Which program did you do in Taiwan? It's called post-baccalaureate Chinese medicine program. So it's basically for, you know, you already have like undergraduate degree, people who go into that program. So it's just a five-year program. And for me, you know, so obviously like the whole thing's in Chinese from the start. But I think when I really start to kind of fall in love with it was probably like in my fifth year when I discovered C-Text, which I'm sure everyone here is familiar with. But basically, if you're not familiar with it, it's just a massive database of Chinese medical text. So you got C-Text, you've got another one called Jitung, and then I guess there are other ones as well, but I mostly use, you know, Kanripo, of course. And so even in my last year, I was like, oh, I'm definitely just like delving into this. And so I did a master's on this book, a Materia Medica book, a Qing Dynasty Materia Medica book, which was like, there's this really cool sort of pulse school in Taichung. And it's like very exclusive school. Actually, our friend Noah uh, Slater is in the school now. And to get into the school, one of the things is you have to kind of like exhibit mastery in this one Materia Medica book. And it's called Benjing Shuzheng, which is hard to translate. <laughs> it's basically just a really, really cool Materia Medica book. What makes it so cool? What makes it so interesting? Well... I mean, first of all, just like when you read this guy's insights, you're like, whoa. Basically, his approach is similar to some like Kampo Materia Medica approaches and also like Huang Huang, where he just looks through, he'll take an herb, right? For instance, I was really focusing on Gansao, and he'll, he'll say, okay, where is this herb used in the highest dosage? 
Okay, because that's obviously going to tell us something about the effect of that herb and that formula. And then he looks systematically at how it's used in various, mostly Jingfang formulas, and then he makes these deductions. And at the same time, he does sort of a little bit of Doctrine of Signatures stuff as well, where he is looking at the way the plant grows and the season it grows and all these sorts of special characteristics of the plant. And he makes a deduction about what that plant does, typically in a very pithy way, one or two lines, and typically very focused on yin and yang and qi and blood sort of uh, dynamics, as opposed to saying, you know, organ theory or six channel theory. It's all about qi and blood, which is also a little bit sort of like going towards compo with their, you know, qi blood fluid idea. But anyways, the thing about this guy is he always seems to be right. And whatever you read about this guy, he just gives you some crazy insight into herbs that you almost definitely didn't think of. But you're like, once you read through it, you're just convinced. And so I did my uh, master's on this guy. I really delved into his stuff. And it really just opened my eyes to the genius of these people. And, you know, the fact that they're all there in the books. They pour their hearts out into these books. And there's all of this you know, potential just sleeping in these books for us to mine, essentially. So it was an incredible revelation for me. That sounds like a great read. It's difficult. No easy feat. Yeah. It's true. Oh, uh, thank you, Michael. Having lived in Taiwan. You're too kind. It's true. But yeah. All right. Right, right. I mean, I sort of like have my uh, criticisms, my critiques, of Taiwan and the Taiwanese system, but maybe that's for another podcast. That's for another podcast. Look, every system's got its uh, ups and downs, its helpfulness and its uh, troubles. Yeah. Michael Brown, how about you? I think it's worth noting that Will is also like a licensed physician in Taiwan as well, which is uh, no easy feat to do as well. So that's like a great accomplishment as well. Well. I was coming up to finishing my study of Chinese medicine acupuncture at that time, and we had two great teachers at our college then. One was John McDonald. He's kind of been a bit of a pioneer in acupuncture and kind of like writing some books on them and some zhang fu and things like that. And so he was uh, my teacher for the history subject, and so I really enjoyed that. But how I got into studying Chinese was... I was in clinic with uh, another great Chinese medicine practitioner who also forged his name in America a little bit, a guy called Greg Bantic. And he sort of, I was kind of talking to him about what I should study next or something like that, because I had some ideas that I thought it might be worthwhile to learn a little bit more from the Western medicine front. And, you know, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase him a little bit, but he sort of said, you know, why don't you learn Chinese language so you can be really good at Chinese medicine and you know what they're talking about? And I might have said, well, you know, why does someone say this or someone say that? And he just said, you know, go learn Chinese and then you'll know for yourself. And so after I finished studying Chinese medicine, I went to enroll in university to study Chinese language. And I spent two years studying that in Brisbane, then a year in uh, Shandong, Jinan in China. And then I came back and I took a little bit of time off. And then I went to seek out 
one of my former Chinese language teachers to do honors with and to learn how to read like a wen yanwen or literary Chinese. Which is a whole different kettle of fish for folks that don't know about that. Yeah. So I think probably most of us had been like, maybe except for Ivan, who kind of went straight into Chinese medicine language and learning from that perspective. I think probably most of us learned modern Chinese. And then we kind of like, you learn a little bit of the phrasing and things like that. But then you've kind of got to learn to pivot and move into learning Chinese medicine language. And then there's also the kind of modern Chinese medicine language, and then kind of like more of the antique or classical Chinese medicine language. And those are all very kind of different ways that you work around it as well. But, you know, when I started reading these Chinese medicine texts, the things that I love to see is I love to kind of go through books and I love to see ideas that are repeated by different authors, different maybe theories or different systems, different songs or odes or treatments or formulas, just to see these things that are continuously repeated throughout history. And when I see this, it makes me stop and think, well, if these very, very kind of intelligent and smart people are continually telling me or, or, you know, writing down this idea, then we should pay attention to that, you know, because it's not just one person saying this. We then have, you know, kind of people 100 years after, then 200 years after, da, 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 kind of continually using this formula or writing something about this idea, acupuncture point or a diagnostic idea. And really, you know, the only way that you can look at this kind of lineage of ideas is by going back to the Chinese medical sources. And that's kind of what really got me interested in it. And that's kind of what got me interested in translating the kind of book that I worked on, which was uh, Explanations of Channels and Points, was that I was just kind of going through all these acupuncture texts, looking at different ideas. And they're all very, very similar, except for that one book. And when I got to that book, it just kind of like blew my mind about there was such an interesting piece of literature that was so unknown. And I really thought, well, got to bring this to the West. And, you know, I was very lucky to work with a guy called Alan Saw, who he edited out most of my mistakes and the ones that remain are my own ones, which is still, there's quite a few there, unfortunately, but that happens with any work that you do. There's always mistakes, but you try your best. And, you know, I think once you start reading Chinese medicine, and I think it's probably something that we can all agree, oh, Chinese medicine in Chinese language, like Ivan said, it kind of almost like teaches you to think a little bit differently. And particularly if you go and look at case studies, because in the West, we don't really put much emphasis on case studies. But when I noticed reading case studies in Chinese languages, that they would often quote maybe like an old song if they're doing acupuncture, or they might quote an old diagnostic idea. And then you get to see that these physicians are interacting with the past sources that drive their clinical ideas, their treatments, their treatment methods, or their diagnostics. And that is, in my opinion, what creates Chinese medicine to become traditional Chinese medicine. When you start bringing these kind of like your mind becomes like thinking of sources when you're in clinic, you know, whether you might think of a Shanghan Lun line, or you might think of an acupuncture song, or you might think of a quote from the Nei Jing. This is what the best old doctors, in my opinion, would generally do. Their clinical decisions were informed by the Chinese medical sources. And I think probably, you know, most of us would agree with that here. And I think that's kind of what's really lacking in the West. For sure, it seems to me that this medicine, look, we kind of turn our history into a fetish in a way. Easy to do. I've done it. But for Chinese medicine to actually be something that's alive, it has to come alive in the moment, in the time that we're actually doing it and working in clinic. It's great to have ideas and it's great to talk about them. 
all well and good and useful, may I add, but it's when it comes alive in us in a way that we go, oh, there it is. And then you work with it with a patient and you see how it unfolds. Now the medicine's not just an idea that's been written down again and again and again. It's actually a living thing. I think it probably makes a difference. Anyway. That makes me think of like the concept of like G or mechanism in Chinese medicine. Mm. That when you inter interact with a person, you're really trying to figure out that mechanism in a person. And that's one of the usefulness of studying the classics that, you know, even Ling Shu Wan tells you that, uh, like the first chapter, that the lower practitioner or the coarse practitioners, they treat the form while the superior practitioner treats the G, the mechanism, right? And then they give the metaphor of like a bolt or like a shooting an arrow. Yeah, the crossbow and the bolt, you know. So you could even look it up like Han Dynasty crossbow just to see what they're talking about. What is the mechanism, right? Or even opening a door, just the mechanism. It's not the door itself, but what makes the door open, right? What makes the arrow shoot out? And that's what the classic teach you because in school, I think they teach you what's known as TCM or how it's often practiced. It just like puts people in boxes. I don't know. To me, it's almost like Western medicine. It just puts these people in boxing. You have fatigue then you have spleen deficiency. You get a little bit of palpitations, you have heart deficiency or something like that, right? Or you have high blood pressure, liver yang rising, you know? And probably the biggest one you see is stress, liver chi stagnation, right? <laughs> exactly. And so I think the classics help you break away with that and it helps you be more dynamic because people are, and I think the results are more. Now, it makes the medicine more complex, yes. And it makes the, you know, thinking a bit more complex, but to some degree, you begin to simplify as well. That takes experience and practice, but it makes it a lot more vivid because a lot of people are a lot more complex than those simplistic TCM patterns often taught in school. And then when we study the classics and study all this Leo Jing, Six Warps, or, or Wen Bing and the Sifen Four Divisions and so on, Wu Xing, you go back to the TCM and say, well, actually, that is useful. Like a tie-in pattern, well, maybe we could say there's several tie-in patterns in TCM. There's liver invading spleen, there's spleen exuberant dampness, there's spleen vacuity. So you could still put it in TCM terms, but you approach it in a whole different lens and you could see how all these organ patterns can come together. Because before the interaction with the classics, your mind was into the reductionist boxes, which I think a lot of is taught in schools for whatever reason, maybe because of didactic Marxism or whatever, right? I don't know. Maybe no one else can touch on that more. <laughs> well, there's also a uh, test that people have to pass, and, and those questions are going to be on the test. So for sure, there's a part of the educational system that encourages that thinking because you've got to pass a test, yes. but clinical work is different. I think like it's an interesting idea coming from like TCM. I think TCM has like a system is a good way to give people a good foundation. But perhaps where the schools fail a little bit is that that's kind of like the limit of what they teach people as well. And the other aspect I would say in terms of TCM is that they don't fully explain some of the ideas or the concepts that I think you could perhaps get in a Chinese textbook as well where they might quote properly like the Su Wen or the Ling Shu for the TCM ideas. So that kind of, when people 
perhaps would learn about those concepts or those quotes in their foundations classes, then they might feel a little bit more of an urge to go back and read those original ideas. Whereas in a lot of Western schools, when they learn TCM, they might just get taught heart governs or heart stores the Shen, not where that quote comes from or what that quote might actually mean. They're just given that idea. And so I think that it is a little bit reductionist, but whereas I think it's kind of like, hopefully we can get some like maybe better like translations and ideas out and things like that, that can help expand upon those terms as well. Yeah. And I think this gets into, for me, what's like a core principle in sort of like a source-based approach, which is this understanding of context. And you might say, well, oh, that's kind of boring. Like, I mean, how is context going to help me in clinic? But it does. And I'll give some interesting examples here. This is an example that I thought of. Um, and this comes from our friend Corey Dillo. Corey Dillo, who is working on a translation of a book on the, the history of the development of acupuncture by Huang Longxiang, which is coming out hopefully soon. I'm editing it. And he was having this discussion of the point Feng Long. What's that in Stomach 40? There's this discussion online about Stomach 40. And I forgot sort of all the details, but essentially Corey came in and said, well, why is Feng Long related to phlegm? In school we're taught, okay, it can help to transform phlegm or something like that, right? Well, if you go back to the sources, if you go back to early books, Ming Tang Jing, the Jai Jing, etc., you're not going to see it indicated for phlegm. Well, of course, phlegm wasn't even a very developed concept at this time, right? But you will see it in indicated for one thing. And I think the other boys in this chat probably know what that is. It's mania. So what happened is, or what we think happened is, as uh, we get into the Jinyuan area time period, like let's say like 1,200 to 1,500 or so, we start to get a new understanding of what mania is caused by. And part of that was phlegm. And so then what happened is there was this sort of concatenation of ideas with phlegm, you know, causing mania and Feng Long treating mania. So then Feng Long treats phlegm. Okay. So that's what we think is part of the context of this one indication or what you could call like a point function. Michael just did a nice video on point functions just yesterday and how they're related to indications. Well, I want to take this a step further. And this shows you, you know, this goes from the realm of, you know, that's nice trivia, Will, to now we can put this directly in clinic. So if we look at Feng Long, right, it's a collateral, right? It's the collateral point on the stomach channel. Well, what do we know about collaterals? Well, if you look at sort of what Corey is looking at with Feng Long Xiang's book, collaterals often are what? They're these vessels that are sort of visible on the surface of the body. So they might be veins or they might be what you call spider veins, right? And so what did they do? For these spider veins, they were typically bled. Even today we know, you know, you see a spider vein at Wei Zhong on, on the bladder channel, you know, that might help with back pain. It might help with any sort of ailments along the bladder channel. Well, the same goes for Feng Long. Feng Long, oftentimes, if you follow tongue acupuncture, you know, dong shi qi shi, they tend to bleed around the Feng Long area. And they say that area is very, very important area for 
global blood stagnation throughout the body, but in particular also on the stomach channel. Well, now we get to our point here. If you bleed on Fenglong, you're essentially moving blood in the Yangming. Well, what does that sound like? It sounds like a very important formula in the Shanghan Lun for psychological problems, namely what? Mania. And that's Tao He Cheng Shi Tang. Tao He Cheng Shi Tang, on one hand, it's got Da Huang, which is obviously, you know, it's locating to the Yangming channel. On the other hand, it has blood moving. And so we know that that combination of blood moving, purging in the Yangming territory treats mania. And so this was probably the original mechanism behind Feng Long, I believe. I'm sure, you know, other guys have their own ideas about this. But if you don't have that context, if you meet a mania, someone who has a mania problem, well, you say, what is mania? Well, it could be schizophrenia. It could be manic depression. Could be even anxiety, truthfully, because mania was a very sort of vague term. And often associated with phlegm. Well, it's really interesting hearing this. I think anyone who's practiced for a while knows that as you practice, you take what you've learned in books, kind of mix it together with what you experience in clinic. We all get kind of a relationship with acupuncture points. We kind of grok them. We get a sense of what they do. I can tell you from my experience that stomach 40, I've used it a number of times over the years to deal with phlegm so to speak. And I'd always have that idea in my mind, like, oh yeah, I'm dealing with phlegm here. But it never felt like it worked. You know, sometimes you put a needle in, it's like, yeah, this is cooking. When I had that idea, I'm going to use this point to deal with phlegm, mm, at least for me, in my experience, not so great. Lots of other things work a whole lot better. But thinking about an excess that might have a phlegm aspect that's manifesting as mania, Oh, I can see that. But that's different than how I've used it in the past. So thank you, and I appreciate that. I love these kind of conversations because someone this week is probably going to show up where I'm going to get to try this out. Right. Yeah. And you see that. You see a lot. You always see spider veins around stomach 40. It's very, sometimes they're not that obvious. And so that attentiveness also to the source, where not only are we thinking about needling, but now we might also need to think about bleeding as well at that point, because that was really part of the original mechanism. And I think you'll see that really borne out in tongue acupuncture. I mean, I'm sure Ivan can speak to it more than, than I can, but it's interesting, you know, tongue sort of developed on its own in some ways, you know, in the mountains of Shandong. And it was uh, sort of impervious in some ways to the modes of the time. So I wonder how it sort of preserves some of these more ancient ideas. You know, sometimes they'll say, Alan Sor will get mad at me, but they call it qi lu yishue. Qi lu yishue is the medicine of the Shandong region, the sort of almost local medicine. And they claim goes all the way back to Bianchi. And so maybe there's something to that. Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. 
You'll be familiar with Dumai, the Governor Channel or the Sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Well, Michael, if you don't mind me asking, do you think that if you have a patient come in that you might bleed at this time or would you be still try and needle it? Oh, if someone comes in with that mania yeah. presentation and if there's a spider vein, yeah, I'm all over it. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So, so, so. If there's not a spider Very vein, cool. yeah. I'll probably just needle it. But if there's a spider vein, yeah, I'll have at it for sure. I, well, you know, that's probably a formula that I yeah. wouldn't have thought too much for mania. So it's really great. <laughs> Thank you for Will yeah. for sharing yeah. that with yeah. us as well. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that too much, to be honest. But Well, again, it, it would be that Yang Ming kind of mania. Mm -hmm. Right? There's different kinds of mania. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think in the actual indications for it. What is that? Sanchol? Uh, si Hua Wai. Oh, Si Hua Wai. Yeah, Si Hua Wai. I think it's 0 0.5 chun superior to Feng Long if you make the because it's 7.5 chun from the papletio Cree or the papletio you know, the whole stomach 35. So 7.5 and Feng Long tradition is 8 chun, so it's just a little different, but it's basically, you know. Well, one cool thing about, you know, you could make the argument that I understand that it does treat blood stasis and it is a lower point and like, yes. It treats blood stasis. But one argument that you might say, well, it can treat phlegm is because if we look at the channel, is it fully on Yang Ming? Like, because of oh, the point that I mean, all other points are kind of your straight and the highway, but that one makes it deviation. It's kind of like long seven, right? the broken sequence. It wants to be like in between. I think even like Yang Wei just, it's in between foot Yang Ming and foot Xiao Yang. Mm -hmm. It's gallbladder-ish. So it's kind of like, because it's kind of going and flirting with both, right? Playing both sides of the team. Well, I think that's the argument that it might be able to regulate the phlegm. So I've heard some dong practitioners say, if you want to treat the phlegm, you move it a little bit more closer to Xiaoyang. And if you want to treat the blood stasis and food accumulation, just Yang Ming evils, you go closer to the Yang Ming. If you want to treat both, you do both in between which i thought was pretty cool same thing with the three weights that you can move them depending on the pathology and the only way to know those pathologies of what xiaoyang is or yang ming is because those things don't mean a lot to a lot of people from my experience as a teacher in school uh, and teaching around and interfacing with a lot of acupuncturists so yang ming doesn't really mean much the only way yang ming means something is if you interact and know facts like that of didang tang or then you get it like a conceptualization of what yang ming or xiaoyang is right because xiaoyang does have some water metabolism issues right 
Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. That's true. And if I'm <laughs> going to push back here and play Corey for a second, why does Beatria deviate? Why does Feng Long deviate? Well, to me, it deviates because of veins. Mm-hmm. You know, Beatria is obviously hey. deviating because of a vein. Feng Long is deviating <laughs> because that's where the spider veins pop up. Right. So it's not that it was somehow when they were creating the channels, they were like, oh, we'll move this one a little bit over so it's more this and that. It's that my opinion of it is that A, they knew about these veins already. These veins were places that they were bleeding already. And then at the same time, it correlated with a Yangmin pathology of this mania. Because even if we look far, far back, you've got this, what is it, Dungaurge? Right in Yangming, you say Dungaurge. Yeah, climbing. Climbing the mountains and singing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like getting up on some like high space and just like singing out because you have some sort of manic episode. So they said, well, we identify that more with Yangming. So we'll put that on the Yangming channel, even though it's like a little bit deviated. That would be my respectful rebuttal. Rebuttal, maybe? Yeah. Yes. Yeah retort yeah of course you know what uh yeah. liu yeah. yi you know <laughs> liu yi like wang chuan min's big premier disciple in his book it's one of my favorite dong books he talks about like the mechanism of that area the whole 77 lateral yeah. side three ways we could just say that three ways as the four flowers and where you could just say fu diaming fu xiaoyang all that area yeah ivan for those who are not familiar with three weights or four flowers could you give us a quick intro to that so we can follow this conversation four flowers are just points that are basically dimensionally segmentalized in the in the yaming channel in the lower leg so for example one will argue they're a little bit different location but there's the upper ones there's sihua shang see like the four flower upper there's the middle one there's Mm. the lower one Mm -hmm. there's the outside one there's the supporting one and so on and so on right and they're along the Yangming channel on the lower leg. Your stomach channel. Three weights, it's between, I mean, the location is three chun above the lateral ankle and then one chun anterior, right? That's the three weights, yi, san chong yi. That's the first one. And then it's two chun, two chun for the second R and then san. But it's in between the normal Xiaoyang and Yangming, right? And it's a lower part of the leg where usually we don't see acupuncture points. Exactly, yes. Right? You go from Feng Long down to stomach 41. I've always wondered about that. Like, yeah. What's with the big stretch with no points? I'll tell you, what, like another really interesting area is the heart channel as well. You know, you go from uh, heart three to kind of heart four. And there's, you know, what is that? That's nearly 10.5 chun with no points along there as well. It's quite interesting because I get a lot of people with arm pain and I'll needle looking at more from like a sinew muscle perspective, the points along that area as well. And I find that quite useful as well. <clears throat> so sorry to deviate from the tongue acupuncture for a moment. Tongue also has a point yeah, there. Yeah, I, would, I mean, if you guys don't mind me asking an interesting question to all of us, because I probably feel most of us were acupuncturists first is like when you guys talk about, you know, like, Yang Ming, Xiao Yang, and then you know the other ideas like Tai Yang, Tai Yin, Xiao Yin, Jian. 
the six confirmation warps. How important do you guys feel that this information is to acupuncturists? Because I think most of acupuncturists don't get too much of this information in their training. I'm going to jump in on this. I'm going to jump in on this. When I was in acupuncture school, we learned like the lung channel. But when I looked in the book, and I was always curious why it didn't seem to be more emphasized. But when I looked in the book, it was the hand tie-in lung. That's its full name. And I thought it was curious that it wasn't. But look, there's a lot to study in acupuncture school. And so, okay, one less thing to think about. Maybe that's okay. But it always stuck with me. And then as I went on in school, I'd have teachers who would talk about channel dynamics and they talk about like the great tie-in channel, lung and spleen. It's like, oh yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, you could look at the body that way when doing acupuncture. It was the very beginning for me of understanding more of a channel-based sense of acupuncture than, than a simple point prescription. And then because we also learned herbs in school, we're learning about the six chi because we're learning some Shanghan Lun. So these things began to weave together for me. Like this might be important. And they're kind of shorthands in a way at a certain point. But then what happened was a few years ago, I started studying some Sa'am acupuncture and that flipping took a bunch of loose ends and just knitted them neatly together. Because when you're using that system, you're not just looking at lung, you're looking at tie-in at the same time. And it's a way of bringing what we would normally think of as simply five phase together with the Liu Jing, Wuxing Liu Jing, So there's that. What it leaves me with today is that initial question I had. It's so weird, like 25 years in the boat, and I still have like original questions first year. I'm still chewing on them. And I don't know if that's because I'm a little slow. I know I do have to go at things more than once to get them. That's for dang sure. Or if sometimes there are some things and they're like really important and it takes iteration and another iteration and another perspective and you kind of overlay it with something else, you know, and then you come back to it again from the first way you looked at it. So I think it's very important in thinking of acupuncture channels to remember their, it's like their full name, hand tie in lung, foot, yang ming, stomach really, really helpful. At least it's been helpful. Yeah, for me. absolutely. And I think is it Ed Neal or David White, someone will tell me who I really like his idea of looking at in Ling Shu 10. And if we look at the 12 channels and we look at the descriptions of indications for each channel, right? And we look at those as formula patterns or patterns. We're used to looking at, you know, Xiao uh, Cai Tang has its own formula pattern. And people take that very seriously. You know, if they see the constellation of signs that occur in Xiao Chai Wutang, they're very likely to use Xiao Chai Wutang. But we have these constellation of signs, especially what we call the Shidong being, which are related to abnormalities in the pulse presentation at the Yuan point on each of the channels. And I don't think people really have these so much in the back of their head. But I think, you know, like we just demonstrated with, for instance, with the stomach channel, they are sort of patterns in a way that people don't recognize enough. But I did want to hear what Ivan had to say about Liu Yi. I was saying that Liu Yi makes the argument that that's region called the 77 region. The reason that it purges blood stasis and phlegm and actually excess is because of circulation. 
But it's, like, he called that area, he says, I don't remember the chapter in the Suwen or Lingshu, but he calls it the Chije, the Chi thoroughfare, the Chi streets. And there's four of them. One in the leg, one in the abdomen, chest, and head, right? And so when you're treating that Chi street, which I think makes a correlation with like this arterial or venial or this circulation that comes back and forth. Because his argument is when you purge that stasis in the yang, then that perfusion or if there's stagnation in the yang, that stuckness in the yang as has to descend downward, that yang has to descend downward, it has to push the yin up because yang has to become yin. Yang channels have to become yin channels, right? The blood has to go come down to go up. And if there's stagnation in the here in the yang, the yin cannot get pushed up and get stuck and manifest as fibroids, breast tumors, breast lesions, abdominal pain. And to me, that's like not contradictory to what you're saying because the chi affair is just, I think, just an ancient idea of like, instead of segmentalizing lung tie-in, it's just like, okay, there's this four major circulatory zones, right? Of yin and yang. Ivan, which book is this? Liu Yi Dong Shi Zhen Qi Jie Dong Shi Zhen Zhou? Yeah, it's Dong Shi Zhen Zhou. Is... Remember the name? Okay. Well, <laughs> but it's a Dong method book. Yeah, it is. Yes, exactly. He's using mm-hmm. it as an argument for that. And he's the only one I've known that actually makes the argument for that, which is fascinating to me and helped like, explain to me so many things. Maybe this explains why Dong really likes to do a lot of bleeding. In that zone, yes. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that's sort of an argument you're saying also for why that can be used for cancers, tumors, nodules, etc., which is sort of what we think now is like a manifestation of phlegm or something like that. That's interesting too, because if you you know what that relates to, yes. which I'm sure you'll remember is Nihai Xia and his way of treating breast cancer, correct? Because Nihai Xia has this idea that if you oh, don't yes. treat menstruation issues and basically issues in the uterus, blood stagnation, et cetera, in the uterus, and also, well, by extension, also like the small intestine, the large intestine. If you don't do this purgation in the lower jowl, then the cancer will not improve essentially. But that's a little bit different because what he's saying is that there's no pathway downwards. You're saying that this is a pathway Upwards, which is quite interesting. Downward to upward. It has to go downward and then upward. Yeah, downward yeah. to upward. Yeah, yeah. And he's quoting a, cool. a Ling Shu chapter about the Qi Jie, which is like the Qi streets or Qi thoroughway. Has, has back like... to mechanism here again, aren't you, Ivan? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm a little bit interested in Iran's kind of like treatment ideas and clinic and things like that, how he approaches acupuncture and herbalism, whether he segments them in his mind or is he kind of doing a combined approach for both of them? Because he's probably out of at least myself, Ivan and Will is the most senior practitioner amongst us. So perhaps he can give us some insights. Thanks, Michael. I actually can't give you a lot of insight because I mostly do herbal medicine. I was sitting here listening to you guys and I was like, oh, the lone herbalist here, just listening to you guys talk about acupuncture. I, I am actually very disconnected from the acupuncture world, unfortunately. I mean, the very little acupuncture that I do is just MSK-based stuff. So a lot of channel palpation. I've got my hands on my patients. I'm feeling, you know, articulations and movement of, you know, range of motion of muscles and stuff. So I'm not actually applying really any form of classical 
approach to my acupuncture, which is actually very little. I am 90. Well, I disagree because I would just say, like, I think in one of the Suwen or Ling Shu, they say, you know, like acupuncture for external, herbs for internal, something like that. So there's still, an, uh, still yep. I would say there's still an argument for the way that you practice, right? Fair enough. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm mostly using herbal medicine in my practice. So my the majority of my practice, everything I teach, everything I do is all herbal medicine. So, you know, I'm actually really enjoying this conversation because I feel like a listener who's really on the inside here who gets to learn some new things. I mean, you know, Will's discussion about Feng Long and, you know, some of the tidbits that I've been sharing is actually really fascinating for me because I really don't actually know anything about that world. So it's kind of nice to actually listen here. So I actually can't give you really more anything beyond that because I think my acupuncture practice is probably really boring. It's not very classical. It's very kind of modern MSK based, but again, it's also very little, right? So that in my community, I've just been a herbalist for so long. And so it's really what the majority of what I attract into my practice now, which, which I'm grateful for because I love plants, and using plants to heal people. So it's, it's amazing. It's amazing that you're able to just market yourself as an herbalist. That's amazing to me because I feel like acupuncture, like that's what they come for. Totally. And they kind of have to sell them on their herbs, but <laughs> you know. Now, it took a long time, but you're right though. Yeah, it took a long time. The way that I would think is best described is that like when people talk about Chinese medicine in China, they think of herbalism. When they talk about Chinese medicine in the West, they think of acupuncture. 100%. Yeah. That's yeah. an interesting yeah. dynamic. Yeah, couldn't agree. Yeah, Huang Huang is certainly not doing any acupuncture, <laughs> right? Huang Huang's not there. Not she's not getting out his needles, right? I can't even imagine when he touched the needle last. I actually told this story a couple <laughs> days ago. Somebody asked me if Doctor Huang does acupuncture. I was like, you know, he probably hasn't touched the acupuncture needle since his like undergraduate education in Chinese. I said I can't imagine unless he's doing some kneeling at home. But again, I'd be surprised by that too. And. It's hard to imagine. Yeah. I mean, you know, Dr. Wong, it's very hard to imagine, but it's also, you know, I tell students this all the time that even in China, you don't really do both. I mean, you are either one or the other. I mean, you get the exceptions here and there, but when you're a practitioner in China, if you're an acupuncturist, you're pretty much an acupuncturist. And if you're working in a department doing herbal medicine, you're not really touching needles. And I mean, at least my experience was, I don't think I really met any doctors who did both. And if they did do both, there wasn't a high level of proficiency in both. And I'm sure that that exists, but I never saw it. I never saw it in China. No. I mean, I remember watching Wang Jui, Dr. Wang, phenomenal acupuncturist, amazing acupuncturist. On occasion, a patient wanted a formula and he would do something, you know, simple, basic that supported the acupuncture. But I can't think of a single herbalist that I've ever studied with. Yeah, some acupuncture teacher acupuncture. gives some uh, patients a, a couple one. times, but well, what I think a, she about just you in Taiwan? Have you Sorry? seen people do both, or is it still very segregated? People do a little bit more both, I'd say. Mm. Oh well, yeah. But the thing is, like, I don't want to get too much into Taiwan bashing, but like the level of formula prescription there is not super high. So it's sort of easy to do formula prescription in uh, Taiwan. So everyone kind of does it. They do something called stacking formulas, which is basically just like one formula for one symptom. <laughs> oh. I had a teacher there in Taiwan. And when I first went to go see him, I was very sick. I had just gotten there and I basically had no Chinese because <laughs> I was there to learn Chinese. And a friend of mine took me there. And uh, the guy's old. He's like, fossil already. He's in his early 90s. 
and I've got this really bad head cold kind of thing. And I get these horrible coughs afterwards, these terrible dry coughs. And this friend took me and this guy prescribed some herbs. And I had the girls at the herb counter tell me what was in it because, you know, I want to know what's going on, right? I'm trying to learn something. And he had put together like four or five different formulas and then modified it with a couple of herbs. So he was basically using a formula as an herb, right? Because he was just looking for that function, for that thing. And I looked at that and I thought, oh my God, I'm going to die. I'm going to be in the hospital. They're going to airlift. I was really flipped out. But, you know, I'm here to learn and I got some herbs and let's find out. So I took those herbs and I woke up the next day. This was a, one of those miraculous moments in my life. I coughed and I coughed up this incredible large amount of gooey phlegm. I hardly ever cough out gooey phlegm. I have dry coughs that linger. So this guy's ability to use that method was mind-blowing, absolutely mind-blowing. So it's kind of like a compo modified in a way. It's probably an influence of the Japanese having been there. But man, the folks that know how to use that, holy smokes. I just would like to go back to Iran's point. I think that sometimes in history, like we get taught this idea that acupuncturists in terms of like literature and things like that, that they weren't that smart or something like that. Or you hear that there wasn't that much acupuncture literature or something like that. Not to say that's what Iran said, but you know, when I go through and look at some of the literature, I'm actually surprised at sometimes how much herbalists have actually written about acupuncture in terms of history. It's just that they don't perhaps exclusively write acupuncture books. For example, one of the most famous Chinese herbalists in history was a guy called Wang Ang. He wrote two very famous books. One was called the Ben Sao Bei Yao, and the other one was called something like the Yifeng Jie, like the collection of commentaries of medical formulas. And what's really important about this book is that this book is almost kind of set the standard of how formulas still today are taught. You have like your exterior formulas, you have your harmonizing formulas, your supplementing or tonifying formulas. And this is the first book that I can really see that started the method that is still taught today, because that's kind of how we're taught today, right? You have those categories of formulas. But what he also wrote about is he wrote like songs about the acupuncture channels as well. So he was actually writing kind of other information that would be useful for acupuncturists as well. But he's kind of seen as like, in my opinion, one of the most influential herbalists and formula practitioners in the history of Chinese medicine. So, and then there's another guy, for example, Zhang Jiebin or Zhang Jingyue, who Alan and myself have worked on some of his books. He talks about this case where he's tried all these other herbal formulas and there was something like some sort of like liver accumulation. And the only way that he actually treats it is by direct moxa on, I think, liver 14 or liver 13, Zhang Men, something like that. And he tried all these other herbal formulas. And I don't think really anyone thinks of Zhang Jingyue as a acupuncturist or a moxa practitioner, but we translated this case study in his book and that's the only way that he kind of like fixed it, you know? So it's kind of like one of the things that I want to look at doing in the future is, is maybe kind of help us shifting this idea that acupuncturists weren't as smart as herbalists or that herbalists were smarter than acupuncturists. Not necessarily, you know, I think it's still a good idea to do, you know, perhaps specialize a little bit in one or the other, but it definitely doesn't mean that you have to as well. But, you know, that's just more of a little bit of a historical gripe that I have that people sometimes kind of like talk about, you know, and... But you make a good point, though, which is that, you know, historically, 
yeah, you do see combinations, right? Like even in the Shanghan Lun, we have a lot of combination, but we see situations in which sometimes he uses acupuncture, sometimes he uses herbs. There are situations in which herbs just are not convenient, in which he decides to use acupuncture. I think that's a really interesting thing and something to keep in mind. And another interesting one that I saw just recently, just yesterday, is Wen Dan Tang. Because I was yesterday, I was looking at Wen Dan Tang. As someone's doing a course on Wen Dan Tang, I was interested in looking at the original usage, which comes out of the Qianjin Yaofang and Tang Dynasty. And very interestingly, below that formula, it says how to cook the herbs, and then it says under that, do I think ten cones on Sanin Jiao. Which I had never seen before, but that's also a part of this source idea, this source-based idea. You know, let's go back and see how these guys were actually using it, what they were using it for, right? And then how was it actually applied? How were they decocting it? How were they applying it? How much dosage per day? And then on top of that, this amazing revelation that for some reason he's also combining it with acupuncture. I'm still a little bit perplexed about that. I need to go back and look, but I found that quite interesting. Yeah, I actually was going to mention that Wendan Tang thing too, in relationship to context, and that's why I think source base is important, is because we get to sort of question others. Because if not, Chinese medicine, I think you know, so different than Western medicine. Western medicine, they can to some degree check each other through evidence-based medicine. Well, our evidence is source-based to some degree. And the person was arguing, well, Wendan Tang for PTSD. Now, I actually just prescribed Wendan Tang for something similar, plus, but like a Longomuli formula. I think Chaiwuja Longomuli. But anyways, if you look at the line of the Wendan Tang, it's like Shufan, vacuity taxation, inability to sleep, and this is cold gallbladder, right? Like, and the argument, well, well, this treats PTSD, but the original Sun Semiao's description, vacuity, vexation, and inability to sleep, is that really PTSD? Now, that's an interpretation, and it's fine, but when people say that's PTSD, I think that is questionable, and that's why source space is important, because we get to question and not get fixated when the time for PTSD. That's questionable, maybe, right? Maybe. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six-chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www 
bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. I think there's another piece in this, though. I think there's another piece in this. I'm going to jump in for a sec. That in these more classic ways of looking at things, we're looking at the presentation of what's going on with a person. And in the more modern way of working, we're looking at disease names and what that disease looks like to us. And we're treating diseases by their name, which is why you can take a presentation that it, let's say it rhymes with PTSD, because there's parts of it that do. And if enough of it rhymes, yeah, use the wind on tongue. But it's a mistake. It's like a mistake in logical types to say, Wind on Tongue treats PTSD, because that's a disease name. And it's very popular, certainly in Western medicine, to treat disease names. And it's become popular in Chinese medicine over the past 50, 60 years. You know, they've gone from a presentation basis, like you see in the classics and the sources, like you guys are talking about. And that gives us a different perspective that I think is certainly worth considering in clinic and not get ourselves screwed up. By going, oh, PTSD, well, quick, grab the wind on tongue. Because if the presentation isn't quite there, you're going to miss it by a mile. Yeah. And that's what I think that just that kind of brings us full circle to what Ivan was saying before when we first started was, you know, grasping that physiological mechanism. And if we don't grasp that mechanism, I mean, then what are we really doing if we're just going to start applying herbal formulas to just diseases? I don't even really think we're practicing Chinese medicine anymore, right? We've lost the kernel. We've lost the heart of it, right? So, and I think that, you know, part of using the Wendantang example is, you know, a lot of doctors will try to interpret and take symptoms and take reading between the lines of characters to try to unravel it and see what it means to modern day. And I think that the PTSD connection, a lot of, from what I've read is going back to Chen Yan's description of Wendantang kind of with talking about the treatment after a major illness. Mm. And so it's like, well, what was that major illness? Was that a major form of trauma or whatnot? which results in this vacuity of fixation and an inability to sleep, these fright palpitations. So I think if we look at it in that context, it's easy to kind of potentially draw a correlation to form of PTSD. And the only way we will know is we have to do it in clinic. We have to apply it. We have to apply it hundreds and hundreds of times. And I think, you know, these are things that, for example, my teacher, Dr. Huang, has done many times and they sent out a team to Sichuan after following the earthquake and they were applying obscene amounts of Wendantang to all these patients and to all these people, and then using that as a, I guess, a form of study, right? To really take large groups and see how it was applied. So, I mean, it's an interesting discussion. It's an interesting way to think about it. But I think just the whole PTSD thing, I really do think it comes from Chen Yan. And I think that his description might be the closest thing we have to, it's like, sure, that does kind of sound like PTSD, right? But I mean, just to close off what I'm trying to say here is, Without grasping the mechanism, like Ivan was saying, I don't even think that that's really Chinese medicine anymore, right? We need the mechanism. I just want to talk a little bit about this case study in a book that I read, which was called uh, Treaties on Seasonal Disease. I think the author's name was something like Lei Feng or Li Feng, something like that. But he talks about this case where he's treating this person. I can't remember exactly what, but he gets the treatment wrong. And the person starts maybe like vomiting blood or some kind of form of vomiting or something like that. And he's writing in his case study and he says, you know, in the Neijing, and I'll just paraphrase, he goes, remember, you mustn't seek the root to treat the disease, not the branch. And so he says, you know, this vomiting of blood 
this is the disease that we see, but not the disease that we treat. He kind of, he's still looking, going back, like he wants to go back and figure out what was the original disease that was caused. And so he comes up with like a formula that treats that. And then this vomiting of blood also gets fixed as well. So I think that's just such a important and critical thing to think is that sometimes in clinic, and this goes back to the mechanism, this goes back to what Aram was saying of looking at context and to Will, is that sometimes the diseases that we see in treatment is not necessarily the disease that we treat because there's a mechanism underlying that disease that is causing it to present. But us as kind of physicians, and I think that the best way for us to understand these mechanisms is to read the sources of of the source-based kind of texts, right? It's interesting to hear Iran say that, though. You know, obviously, because if we look at Huang Huang, he's sort of coming from a Kampo perspective to a degree. Obviously, he has a lot of this large pedigree in what is it, Jiangsu area, and all the people who come out of there and the Taoingfu and all these people who would have looked at mechanisms. But if we look at Kampo, that's very not mechanism based, right? I mean, obviously, there are some people who propose some mechanisms and stuff. But it's really about formula pattern, correct? Or, you know, the Fang Zheng Ren, formula pattern person, including constitution. And so that's not really related to mechanism. And I think if we look at a lot of Jing Fang in China today, there's very little mechanism. You know, there is some, but not to the same degree that we saw, you know, previously in someone like, uh, if you look at like Tang Zhonghai, or these sort of like Republican era guys and, you know, how deeply they went into mechanisms. But if you look at, for instance, Feng Shilun, he actually distinguishes the sort of medicine he does, which he calls Jing Feng, from the kind of medicine that exists in the Huangdi Jing, which, what does he call it? I think he calls it Yi Jing, which is mechanism based, right? And so there's almost a distaste for that in modern China. I would say. Of looking at mechanism. But can't you kind of get mechanism out of looking at person, presentation, and formula? Doesn't that also kind of speak to it from a different angle? Maybe ask Aaron that. (laughs) I do. I mean, I think that that's the huge discussion. But to sum up the way Dr. Wong would, would look at it, because, you know, if we're talking about, if we go down the rabbit hole of mechanisms and understanding physiological mechanisms... I mean, that's a whole nother theoretical discussion. When you are a clinician seeing 60 people a day, you don't have time for it. You don't have time to wax poetic all the time, unfortunately. I actually just read an interview with Dr. Huang that somebody asked him this long-winded question about trying to understand deeper meanings behind things. And his response was, 我喜欢简单. Like, I just like it simple. You know, that's it. I like it simple. And I thought that that was a perfect response because... He goes right to the point, right? So, yeah. So, I mean, discussing mechanisms, it is a slight deviation from the way Dr. Huang does things. And Dr. Huang works on the triangular model of the Fang Bing Ren, understanding the formula, understanding the disease, and understanding the person. But I think you can't understand those things truly in a deep way and how they interact without really knowing and understanding the mechanisms. And I mean, he may not discuss them and talk about how Kai Yang rises and Yang Ling descends, but... You know, you wouldn't have any of these things without an underlying understanding of those mechanisms, right? Well, I was just going to say quickly, one of the things that I love about Chinese medicine is that, like, I think sometimes we talk about these competing schools 
and differing ideas, but perhaps it's a better way of more calling them like complementary schools. Is that like just because they don't have the same ideas doesn't mean that we can't learn from like Dr. Huang's learnings and then also look at it from a mechanism perspective. They don't have to be necessarily competing in our mind. They can be complementary and help us learn and understand the medicine in different ways. And Ivan, sorry? Absolutely. What I was going to say is that, yeah, I mean, I agree with Will that sometimes the mechanism can lead you astray because you're so lost in theoretical meanderings without looking at the person. Like, what's the use of thinking about Wu Tang if you don't know the presentation of Wu Tang, right? Or Gui Shai or Germ Tang? what's the presentation? Swollen legs and like this swollen joints and the Lijia presentation, right? Or Gui Tang, whatever. That's why I think Zhang Junjing first gives you line 12, like the whole sort of presentation and sort of mechanism of Gui Tang. And then in line 13, he just repeats the same line almost, but just simplifies it. That's the Fang Zheng. So he's like, don't forget, like, you need to know what the presentation is before you just get lost that it treats Zhong Feng. It can treat the whole loss, a whole bunch of things like necrosis. I read that Gui Tang can be treated for brain abscess, I've seen cases. Because well, that was a Chowing Fu case, right? Yes, I think he treated brain abscess. Yep, or his student, whatever. But because of the Feng Zheng, right? So I do agree that uh, sometimes the mechanism can lead you astray. But I think one paradox in clinic is when you get this paradoxical symptomatology, where like why a lot of our doctors who treat RA, why do they use Wuto? Like, why do they almost always, even in hot B, they'll use Wuto? And that's because the underlying mechanism of, even if it's hot B, it's still cold B. So they'll combine it and change it, right? And that's why a lot of clinic times you'll have like, wait, why do you have like a cold surface, but like a hot interior or something like that? It's just maybe a, like there's always this paradoxical symptomatology that sometimes just prescribing just purely feng zheng might leave you confused too. That's why I think a combination is important. Exactly. Couldn't agree more, Ivan. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. But what I would say is that I think like Dr. Huang's kind of like teaching perspective is that, like you said, it's kind of like simple. It's just kind of like, you know, if I could bring it back to what we were discussing earlier about TCM, it's a really good foundation. And it's like, it's not like you can't study more after that, but it's kind of like, before reading, like, uh, Tai Young opens, Yang Ming closes, Xiao Yang pivots, just get the formula patterns, right? Like, what's in the herbs? What do they treat? Don't worry about all these kinds of, like, kind of whimsical dynamics of, you know, the Ben Biao, Zhongqi, things like that. Just know what these things treat. And then, you know, once you know these, kind of like, you can walk in clinic, then you can perhaps go and run. I mean, was that perhaps kind of like Dr. Huang's ideas there around? Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly how I teach in my classes too. It's always the fang zheng. The, the physiological theoretical stuff is, you know, it, it's for fun. It's to try to have a deeper understanding of the six confirmations and how it all works. But of course, I mean, you know, we're trying to teach battlefield herbalism here. We, we want to teach a form of herbalism that people are going to be able to understand how to use. And if you start to confuse people with too much of the theory, a lot of it is just poetry. I mean, I'm a huge fan of poetry and not that there's anything wrong with that, but if it's not applicable, if you give a person an obscene amount of information that sounds beautiful and has all of this ethereal qualities, 
but they don't know how to take that information and use that. They don't know what a Guizhou Tang is actually going to look like in real life clinic. Then I find it to be useless, right? So yeah, I mean, the Huang Huang model of teaching really is focusing on Fang Bing Ren. It's to understand the formula, to understand the Fang Zheng of the formula, to understand the person that will respond to that type of formula and to understand the condition and to understand the disease that's going to put it all together. So absolutely, yeah, that would be his model. That's part of source-based is sort of the credo of source-based is a respect for these sources and the fact that oftentimes with indications, they represent the crystallization of experience, clinical experience over hundreds of years and thousands upon thousands of cases. Right. And so people say, well, you know, you know, sometimes you'll say people saying, I'm don't need to read, uh, you know, the Junjo Da Tung or something and look at those indications because let's just someone said that. But oftentimes, as Aaron said, it's battle tested. This isn't just, you know, someone's whimsy. This is what they went to time and again. And another example of this, which is quite interesting, is if we look at Gansao, right? I did a little research on Gansao back in the day. And Gansao, if we look before the Song Dynasty, well, actually, including this before the Yuan Dynasty, Jin and Yuan Dynasty, Gansao was sort of represented as a coursing, unblocking in the Mi Bielu, the second text in which Gansao appears in history. There is a line that says, Gansao Tong Shue Mai. Tong Shue Mai means unblocking the blood vessels. Now, you might think that's odd because. Once we get to the Jinyuan dynasty, what they do is they start getting fancy with theory. And they say, well, you know, forget about the indications that came in the past. Let's just look at what it says in the Huangin Aging and sort of rationalize something. And so they rationalize that, you know, sweet is moderating in the Huangin Aging. And they say, okay, this is the, mod- the most moderating herb. It helps to moderate all the other herbs in the formula. Well, that's so different from the experience of people from the Han Dynasty to the Song Dynasty. And if we go by their understanding, we lose all of this sort of depth in three dimensions that Gansao as an herb has in texts like the Shang'an Lun and so on and so forth. And so it's for me, it's very, very important to take indications that we find in these early texts very, very seriously. Yeah, absolutely. If I could just quickly give a shout out to Will's article in The Lantern from a couple of years ago. I think that a lot of this information is actually in there. And I don't know if we can add it to the show notes or something. I don't even know if that's possible, Will, but it's a beautiful read. And I think it'll just expand so much on what oh, Will's yeah. talking about here. The Dazao article is great as well. I mean, it's funny that you say that because that was actually in that lantern. Will and I both published an article in that. And that's actually how Will and I became friends because he posted on one of the forums asking about the article that I posted. And I looked at it and I thought, who's this bozo asking about my article? What does he know? This schmo. He thinks he can come along and ask stuff about me. Oh boy, he's got something coming. And then anyway, I spoke to him and I thought, hey, this guy, he's all right. And we've been good friends since then as well. Well, gentlemen, we are getting close to a time where we need to land this thing. First of all, thank you for the time today, the discussion today. It certainly has been lively. And it reminds me again of how amazing the medicine is that we practice, that it has this incredibly rich history, if you can read it, 
and big shout out and big thanks to you guys because, you know, I was kind of joking a little earlier that this is the international Chinese medicine translation mafia, but, but you're kind of the new generation of translators of the medicine. We have had other folks that have come before that have instrumental in bringing so many books from Chinese into English. 50 years ago, there just weren't that many. There's enough books on Chinese medicine in English right now. Even if you only read it in English, you still couldn't read them all in your lifetime. So we live in a time of abundance that way. But as you pointed out, there's all kinds of other materials, other sources out there. And it also kind of, I think Ivan pointed this out earlier, it kind of does something to your awareness and your consciousness when you engage this material. It makes you different kind of person, not just a different practitioner. It makes you a different kind of person. I'd like to end this today with each of you maybe following up on that idea of how has this work and engaging these sources changed you as a person? And then also to hear what you're working on now. And then I think you guys have some kind of teaching thing going on. I'd like to hear about that as well. Well, do you want to start in reverse order and I'll go first from the introductions? I would just say that, in my opinion, Alan Saw is probably one of our number one translators who isn't joining us, who, and I edit a lot of his material. I'm lucky enough to do that, to work with Alan, because he is just a brilliant, phenomenal translator. And if I could add one more thing is that like, this, in my opinion, coming together and talking about Chinese medicine for my friends, this is probably the best thing that I've gotten from the medicine is an ability to come together with people like yourself, Michael, and the others is to be able to talk to the medicine like this on this kind of like level, talking about the classic text, talking about how they're approached in clinic, talking about the mechanisms and things like that. Being able to read Chinese gave me the ability to have discourse with similar minded people on these kinds of topics. And for that, you know, that's life-changing for me is to be able to talk about the medicine with people like that. And that, that yeah, you can't, can't put a price on that. And in terms of what I'm working on, I'm just working on some acupuncture courses, looking at points, also looking at how modern clinical masters in China have used these points in their clinic. Because I think that's something that is missing in the West is how we get a lot of like herbalism and things like that, but no one's really looked at how acupuncture points have been used in kind of like the last maybe hundred years by modern clinical masters in China. So that's kind of one of the things that I hope to bring out by some very well-respected authors that their books that I've been working with. And I just want to say, yeah, thank you to everyone else and Michael for having us. All right. I guess that's me then. I'll also give a shout out to another one of our translators in the stable, the up and coming, the budding translator, Corey Dillo, who's a friend of ours. And as I said, you got to look out for his translation coming soon of Huang Longxiang's epic masterpiece of the historical development of acupuncture. It's going to blow people's minds. And so I got to get back to editing that. But uh, in any case, as for me, I think the way that it's changed me is it's brought a bit of humility to an otherwise sort of uh, arrogant, saucy Westerner like myself. And, you know, when you just read these old texts and you just see the, the level of intellect, it's also instilled some confidence in me where it's like, oh, okay, these are some bright minds. They kind of knew what they were doing. And this was the medicine they were working on. So an incredible sense of humility and fascination that's come with working on this material. 
And as for me, yes, I'm also working on courses, mainly I'm focusing on Shanghai Lun course currently. And the perspective is also sort of similar to Michael, where I think there's a lot of actually modern practitioners um, and also like Qing Dynasty as well, who are not as well known and have some incredible ways of applying the Jingfang medicine and incredible insights and be it in Pulse, be it in Fukushima, et cetera. And so bringing that into the public, sort of the way I think of it almost is like doing this almost like data mining for people and hopefully presenting in a way that's digestible. And then obviously also editing the work for Corey. Data mining Chinese medicine. You should put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Aran, what about you? Well, you know, for myself, engaging with the texts, engaging with the Chinese books essentially keeps me from ever getting bored. It gives me something to do. It keeps me in a beginner's mind. And that's what I strive for. And I think that kind of what I was alluding to before, this is a field, a subject that we'll never master. And that brings me such joy because I think if you master something, you end up getting bored and you need to move on. So this allows me to be continuously engaged. I still get so excited buying new books. You know, I went to the Chinese bookstore a couple of days ago. I got a couple of books and it's still so exciting because there's so much out there. And I love problem solving. And I think that reading Chinese is the ultimate form of problem solving. And it's just really fun. So I don't know what I've really learned about myself. I think that I've learned that I really love reading books. And I really love engaging with the medicine. And it's just really fun. And I think, you know, I could probably speak for all of us. It's probably opened a lot of doors and opportunities for further engagement in other avenues that probably wouldn't have been available to us without accessing source material. It's just really fun. As for myself, I've been teaching as well for the last year. I'm teaching a lot of the work that was passed down to me from my teacher from Huang Huang. So I'm teaching a lot of formula presentations. We just finished a year of going through individual herbs. And, you know, I'm super thrilled to be working alongside these brilliant guys here. It's, it's super fun. It's super engaging. And so there's lots, lots of stuff coming up. We've got a book coming up, hopefully in the next month or so. This is Dr. Huang's latest book which we've translated about a year and a half ago, and it's going to be published by Eastland Press anytime now. So that's pretty exciting. And thanks, Michael, for allowing us to come here and have this essentially just chat like a bunch of buddies and talk about random stuff. Super fun. That's basically the DNA of Geological, in case Love you hadn't it. noticed. I do. Yeah. Ivan, any last thoughts to Man. wind it up? Well, thank you, Michael, for bringing us out for having this so we were missing is some tea or some good tequila right uh what how Chinese medicine has changed me is actually my body wouldn't be as very functional without Chinese medicine like I've had uh, some autoimmune stuff I've had some PTSD stuff and other stuff so Chinese medicine to some degree has saved me from a plethora of suffering so that's what drives me because you know like we talk about poetry. Well, for me, like I got into Chinese medicine to some degree because of my own conditions. So I like to approach Chinese medicine, like how do I treat disease or how do I tangibly change a person's condition, right? So to me, all theory leads up to that re clinical result. And I have to say, I wouldn't classify myself a translator 
because I'm not the one per se. You guys are, and I always think every translator for bringing that. I've translated things because I've taught, so I've put a lot of, of translated like some books that I put into my courses, but I've never put any books, so that's why I'm hesitant to ever call myself a translator like you guys. And I know the massive work that it requires. But what I'm really working on is just clinic and trying to really help get into what we call the Academy of Source-Based Medicine, which with Will, Michael, and Iran. And I think we are introducing something very special to the West. And I don't know, it's like something that we're all bringing some unique insight and connection to the text and helping it bridge that clinical connection to people. Because I myself, I'm always focused on clinic and I have a good, decent experience treating complicated things, cancers, autoimmune stuff, genetic stuff, and the classes that didn't help that. And I think in the academy, we're going to help people help treat that better. That's terrific. Well, we'll be sure to have links over on the show notes page to uh, a lot of the things that we've talked about today. So if you all want to go check that out, head on over there. Gentlemen, thank you so much for this time today. It's really been a lot of fun, and I so appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. I found for myself that reading medical Chinese has been like finding a new part of your city that you didn't know existed. And it's a cool place to hang out. As Ivan points out early in the conversation, it's not just that you get access to helpful and useful perspectives that you'd otherwise never know about, but the process of working through the Chinese, it changes you. These guys are doing interesting work on topics and doctors that have grabbed their attention as practitioners. For sure, there is a place for academic translation of Chinese medicine texts, but the material that comes from practitioners, mm, it has a different flavor. Check out some of their work and see for yourself. And as we live in a world that makes it easy to download a free copy of pretty much anything you'd like, do keep in mind that translations, they take a ridiculous amount of time to do and do well. I encourage you to show some respect and help support the people that are giving you access to the treasures of old doctors. Buy the books. Don't steal them off the internet. I'm serious about this. Not paying for these works is like eating next year's seed corn. If you love the medicine and you appreciate the access to material in a language that you don't read, buy the books. Support the people who are burning their jing essence in service of the work so that you can become a better practitioner. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.